The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our Old Testament reading comes from the prophet Amos, chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs at the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate, hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there anyone still with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow in the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison. You've turned the fruit of righteousness into wormwood bitterness. You who rejoice in low devar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaum for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labo Habath to the brook of the Arabah. God, we thank you for your word of your grace. How many of you have had an ingrown nail? Oh, yes, many. By the grimace and the groan that just came. Ingrown toenails. Those are my two worst things. I don't like toenails and I don't like ingrown toenails. They hurt horribly, don't they? But at the start of an ingrown toenail, you know what the remedy is, don't you? You have to get that small little pedicure shovel and plow it underneath the nail to remove the dirt and the dead skin and the infection stuff underneath that nail that's creating the pain. 
What happens when you painfully plow underneath? There's relief, healing, an ability to walk normal again. What happens if you ignore the symptoms? Well, left untreated and left infected, ingrown toenails can actually begin to destroy the tissue around the nail. And they can begin to destroy the bones and they can begin to end up in the bloodstream leading to a loss of flesh, a loss of bone, a loss of limb, a loss of life. Today's sermon is going to hurt you. I know because I try to preach sermons to myself first. And preparing this message hurt me. Because I don't like dealing with the pain of an infection. I want to deceive myself into believing it doesn't exist or it's not that bad or it's someone else's problem. But that's part of the deceptive nature of this type of infection. Because this infection is one that we can spot in everyone else, but we are blind to it ourselves. Some diagnose this infection as spiritual cancer, which eats away at our ability to love. Some describe this as the measure of the longest distance that can occur between two people. Some relate to this infection as being the parent of destruction. And Amos chapter 6 describes the infection as something a loving God hates. What is it? Pride. Pride is an infection we can see and we can smell in others easily. The pompous social media hound who loves to put people in their place. The mean girl at the lunch table. The one who believes the sun rises and falls on them and who only wants to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one. We can recognize those people. We have the hardest time, though, believing we are guilty of pride. But that's actually the number one indicator of its presence. A pleasure that we have in being right or being righteous and someone else being wrong or being unrighteous. I want to do a little self-exam this morning of pride. Some questions I want to ask you. How do you react when you're ignored or you're not appreciated for what you've done? Or how do you respond internally when someone makes much of themselves? Or how do you really feel internally when someone fails in something that you do really well? Inside of us is this feeling of pleasure or satisfaction in being in the right. Maybe you get mad. Maybe you get even or you get allies around you or you get righteous. You get ingrown. 
you get blind to the pride going on beneath the surface. I just want to clarify something. Pride in its purest form doesn't need to be a sinful thing. Godly pride, there is such a thing, is a deep sense of pleasure or satisfaction, but it's in something beyond yourself. When the father looks down from heaven and sees Jesus and says, this is my son with whom I am really proud. I'm well pleased with him. And when I say to my sons, I'm so proud of you, buddy. When he makes a great shot on the basketball court or he works hard for a good spelling grade. Or he tackles that difficult violin piece. I'm really proud of you, buddy. I know that they've done something outside of me. We can even have a healthy pride inside of ourselves, right? When we complete a task, finish a project, run a marathon, because it wasn't something we thought we were able to do. Where pride gets infected is when that pleasure or satisfaction comes from wanting credit or glory for something which is not yours to have. Sinful pride is glory stealing. And a loving God, the Lord, hates this pride because at its core is independence from him and dependence upon self. A glory in me and a stiff arm to thee. So what's the Lord's view, friends, of sinful pride? Let's hear some scriptures account of God's posture toward pride. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, as you heard in James 4. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty or a cocky spirit before a fall. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14. The character Michael Scott in the sitcom The Office is the poster child of pride. It's so uncomfortable to watch him make much of himself. In one episode, he makes this foolish decision, which is going to cost the company thousands of dollars. It's his Willy Wonka golden ticket promotion. And when his promotion on his own dime was discovered and that it's going to cost the company thousands of dollars, what does he do in response to protect himself? He manipulates his lackey Dwight, who will do anything for him to take the fall for it. So when it's discovered, Dwight is going to be the one that's punished. But as soon as Dwight does take the credit for it, it's discovered that this promotion that he did, this golden ticket promotion, was actually going to be the reverse. It was going to be incredibly profitable. And it eats Michael up inside that Dwight is getting the glory. The guy he made take the fall. Why is this character so cringeworthy and yet the show so successful? Because, friends, Michael Scott is us. And we will never admit that. We will never look at him and say, there is me. But there is me. 
And a loving God in his hatred of the infection of pride needs us to see that we are Michael Scott. To see it, admit it, and turn from it. And today, Amos chapter 6 is God's unconventional way of loving us by hating our pride. God is loving you today by hating your pride. By getting under that nail. And that hurts, but it's a good hurt because it leads to healing. The Lord loves us by hating our pride. And we must face the painful task of asking him to humble us. Go ahead and plow out that pride from behind the nail, Lord. Search me, God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. And if there is, show it to me. Do whatever it is to take that I can see it. So I can ask you to clean what's under there. To heal what's under there. Because if I don't, I will die from this infection spreading to my blood and to my bones. So three questions I want us to ask for the Lord to reveal to us through Amos 6. And it's this. What does the smell, the reek of pride look like in us? Second, what is the Lord's response to unrepentant pride? Finally, what is the remedy to our infection? First question, what does the reek the smell, the stink of pride look like in us. Look at verses 1 to 7. We're going to allow these passages to show us the untreated infection and what it stinks like. There's three main blind spots that are going on in Israel and go on in us. Three lies which we delude ourselves in believing in our untreated pride. First lie is this, that we can't be touched that we're invincible. Look at verse 1 and see descriptors of a people who believe they can't be touched. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Woe to you who are feeling secure on the mountain. At ease. Instead of standing at attention to possible threats of attack, the people like a military are at ease. At ease in Zion. And instead of trusting God to protect the people, they're finding security in being way up high on the mountain. That's where they're finding the security, is being on this mountain. They believe they're safe, they're invincible, they're untouchable. Have you ever been to any castles in Europe? In Germany, especially along the Rhine River, you see these castles and where are they? They're perched way up on these cliffs. And I look at them and I said, somebody at some point in time when they built that believed they could stay safe there forever. But today, most of those castles are completely emptied, abandoned and dilapidated. Do you believe you're untouchable? Second lie you see is this. It says, we are superior to others. Look at verse 2. The Lord asked the house of Israel, high up on the mountain, to take a look at some other nations while they're up there. Kalna, Hamath, Gath, three places up and down the landscape of Israel where the people of God had victory against their enemies. And his question to them is this, do you really believe you're better or greater than them? You believe that these victories that I gave you are because you're morally or virtually superior to them? 
This superiority complex extends into verse 3 as the people believe they are so superior that they'll never get attacked. So what do they do? They keep on treating people beneath them like garbage. They bring near the seat of violence in believing they're better. Friends, do you believe you are better than some? The last category of lie In our invincibility, in our superiority, we start to believe we deserve the things we have. Verse 4 to 8 depicts a people of this lie. Look at them. They're self-absorbed. They're self-indulgent. They're self-deceived. Verse 4, they're lying on beds of ivory. Do you really need a bed made of elephant tusks? Does anyone need that? No way. Does an elephant need to die so you can have something to lay on? Not at all. What is our modern day equivalent of these beds of ivory? I think it's the Tesla right now. Teslas seem to be today's bed of ivory. I see my kids do a double take when they see one coming by. Who's going to get out of that one? That's bed of ivory right there. And I watch a guy actually at the Y drive past me in his Tesla. And I just, just, there's a posture about even how he was driving this vehicle. Verse four, again, you see them stretching out on couches, not lifting a finger, but making the help do all the work, eating lambs, baby sheep, eating baby cows, delicacies. But the funny thing about them eating these baby sheep and these baby cows is not for the taste. It's for the status. Like foie gras or caviar. For status. And verse 5, they're singing not God's praises who gave them these blessings, but they're instead singing songs to make them feel and feed on more doses of themselves. I did a scan of Apple Music's hit list this week to hear what are our songs that the world is singing. Just some of the top titles. I bet you think about me. That's a top hit. Stretchy Pants is a top hit. (laughs) Miss me when you're gone. Listen to that. Miss me when you're gone. And then another one. I'm serious. It was in the top ten. I deserve Along with these soundtracks of self. In verse 6, what do you see them doing? They're desecrating the sacred. They're drinking wine out of the baptismal. Like a party. They're drinking wine like a punch bowl out of the baptismal. They're anointing themselves. It's not God choosing who are the priests. Now I get to, I'm, I'm, I get to be a priest. I'm a priest. I'm a priest. I'm a priest. They're anointing themselves. The pride of self-absorption leaves no room for anyone else. You are the gold standard. And the gold standard, you know what? You need to be treated well as the gold standard. And others around you who are in need, not as much. You can see this in the last line of this pride diagnostic. But you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Your own brother is laying bloody in a pit and you could care less. Amos is pointing out that this infection of invincibility, of superiority, of 
I deserve a break has caused their eyes to completely neglect, ignore, and even being unfeeling toward anyone who's in need outside of them. Friends, welcome to the divided states of America. Friends, welcome to the divided church in America. Friends, welcome to All Saints Church. Do I have to touch the ingrown nail much to get a response of, ouch, ouch, that hurts. How is God exposing the lie in you that says you're invincible, superior, or deserving more than others? We saw it in one of our professional athletes this week, I think. But do you see it in yourself, church? Because you have Jesus Does sin or temptation no longer touch you? Because you have Jesus, are you a far better specimen of a person than those heathen LGBTQers or those anti-vaxxers or those Brandon Biden lovers? Because you have Jesus, you must be something special that he had no choice but to choose you, Calvinist. I watched a documentary this week on Adolf Hitler. And near the end of his tyranny in Europe, as he was attempting to take over Russia, and as millions were dying on the battlefield on his watch, his support staff would come to him in his mountain lair called the Crow's Nest. And where would they find him when they were needing help? How do we do this? We're losing this battle. What did they, where did they find him when they went to look for him in the crow's nest? Guess where they found him? In his film room. He was watching films of his past rallies and his past speeches and the past marches. He was obsessed with self-importance. And he had no regard for the thousands of his faithful followers who were dying for his destructive cause. He was just watching film of himself. Take the risk and ask God to reveal to you right now, where is your crow's nest? Where do you go and watch films in your head of your greatness and someone else's defeat? I'm just going to take a few moments to pause after each of these questions so you can marinate on this. Who is the person you have believed yourself comparatively better than? Ask God to reveal to you where you think you're stronger or you're morally superior than you actually are. Ask God to reveal to you who you honestly believe to be less deserving of God's grace than you. He will show you. And he's asking you through this passage to repent. To get off the mountain of your grandiosity, your self-rightness, your pride. It stinks. It reeks to him. And see that anything good you have is there because of Jesus, because of grace. So what is the Lord's response then to this reek of pride? Verses 8 to 11 says this, it's death. 
How does the Lord God, the loving God who gave the people of Israel the grace of his presence, respond to untreated infectious pride with a posture of hate? We don't like this. We don't want to see this from God. We want a happy fun ball God who even winks at our pride and says, it's okay, son, just try a little harder next time. No, the Lord swears to God. (laughs) He swears to himself that the pride he sees will stop. The Hebrew in verse eight says that he is puffed up at the puffing up of Jacob. His lion's fur is like raising as he looks at the fur coats of Israel that they're wearing. Every blessing from the blesser they believed was deserved them. I'm going to take it away. Their mighty armies defeated their houses. Both the winter house, the summer house can be smashed to pieces. Their cities, their fortresses attacked, broken, burned into a crisp. The death and devastation will actually be so great, verse 10 says, that even those who stay behind, hiding out in the middle of the house, thinking the storm will pass, will be afraid to say the name of the Lord because it could cause the last remaining wall that's standing to fall on them. God hates your pride. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he actually opposes something in you? Your pride. Your pride needs leveling in you, plowed up so that you can see beyond yourself to see him. Would you dare risk asking the Lord God's army of angels to come and plow out to tear out anything in your life, even the blessings that are leading you to a life of independence from him. Would you dare ask him to do that? Because you will die in your pride, but you will live in him. Lord, get behind the nail and plow it out of me. A song that's recently stayed with me lately is a song um, by a guy named Jay Lynn called Letter to the Editor. And I love songs that have this ability to reveal my heart where I go, oh, yeah. Did you catch the news today? Two women died in that hurricane. And they were drowning while I complained that my flight had been delayed. That accident on the interstate was so bad that they closed both lanes. A man was dying while I complained that the traffic wouldn't move. Soon all the cars will drive themselves. Some people think it will really help, help me to complain about something else. Listen to what you're complaining about, because it is a pointer to your pride. Complaining is anti-grace and entitlement and death. But thanksgiving is pro-life and a pointer to the one who died for you. The battle between you and God over pride, you will always lose. So die to believing what you've been given will save or secure you. Die to believing that your house, your kids, your reputation, your retirement will puff you up and give you a leg up to the Lord. Believe instead in the one who humbled himself moving heaven and earth to take on your pride. That leads to the last question. What is the Lord's result of plowing out our pride? You see this in verse 12 to 14, but it's a little bit nuanced. What's the Lord's result of plowing out pride? A kingdom of 
glorious humility. Verse 12 to 14, it gives us this picture of the nation of Israel being completely plowed under by another nation. They've tried to build this nation on injustice, treating people as lesser than themselves. They've tried to build this nation on unrighteousness, believing themselves to be the standard of perfection, not God, and it stinks. They have farmed a nation, verse 12 says, on rocks. It also says they've hitched up their oxen and tried to plant a cornfield in the ocean. Imagine trying to do that, farmer. The language of these last few verses becomes agricultural. Amos, a farmer and a shepherd, knows God's plan in sending them out as exiles from Israel. Get out. The cities are going to be destroyed. Your armies are going to be decimated. No one's going to be left standing. It is going to be flattened. Why? To till the soil. To scatter a new seed. To start a new nation. To plant a new kingdom. The people who have rejoiced in low debar, literally meaning they've rejoiced in nothing, This kingdom that's built on their own pride will be left to nothing from top to bottom, from Lebo Hamath to Arabah. The house of Israel's pride will be plowed under and all that will be left will be an empty field to prepare the way for a new land, a new king, a new kingdom, a kingdom that will never end because it was built upon the bedrock of humility. A king who would not consider himself of any importance or use violent means to get his way, but instead would call himself lowly and gentle. A king who would consider laying down his life for his friends more important than his own life. A king who would be born in a humble, no-name town. A king who would be found sleeping in a feed trough. A king who believed to be human was not to be invincible, so would die himself. A king who believed equality with God was not a thing to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing. A king who was given such a good gift of perfect fellowship with his father and with the spirit that he didn't hoard it for himself, but offered it to any sinner who would admit they didn't deserve it. We ask God to plow out our pride and destroy our strongholds and kill what is killing us, not as an end, but as a beginning, as a tilling of the soil. So his humble kingdom can be planted in us transforming us into a dependent people, dependent upon God for every morsel of daily bread and daily forgiveness. Transform us into a humble people to see that everything we have as Amanda prayed is a gift from above. Transform us into a satisfied people. That Jesus, who is the death penalty for our pride, is our justice served. And Jesus, who the Father looked down upon from heaven and said, I'm so proud of him. He is what we pride ourselves in. And transforming us into seeing others as more important than all saints church. Who love like we've been loved. Loving the meek, the lowly, the sinner, the struggling, the starving. This is the kingdom planted not on self-preservation, but on self-sacrifice. 
A kingdom planted not on self-sufficiency, but on humble deficiency. A kingdom planted never by our own hands, but only by the nail-scarred and stone-pushing, grave-conquering hands of Jesus. It's going to be a kingdom where I'll delight in the fact that in the new heavens and new earth, your mansion is going to be so much bigger than mine, and I'll love that. We're all delight in the reality that the only reason I'm allowed access to the Father is because you loved me. We're all delight in the face of my adopted Father who washed my filthy stink of pride with his son's blood so that I smell like the sweet aroma of his son he's proud to call his own. This is the kingdom we are seeking first. For him to prepare in us. Begin plowing our pride today, Lord, we ask. And everyone said, Amen.